This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything on this show, from arts to sports, from history to business, and everything in between, including your stories, and send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Now we're about to dig into a story about a man you all know, but you don't know as well as you should. On this day in history, in 1839, George Armstrong Custer was born. Custer was the youngest Civil War general in the Union Army. An incredibly fearless and eccentric man, he scented his hair with cinnamon oil. A man whose heroics have been reenacted time after time for the big screen and for the stage. In fact, President Ronald Reagan played him in the 1940 Western Santa Fe Trail. A year later, Errol Flynn starred as the same man in the biopic. They died with their boots on. We all know Custer's name. This fascinating story will remind you why. On a desolate hillside amidst the rolling prairie of Montana, George Armstrong Custer made his last stand. Although one of the most successful military leaders in United States history, it was Custer's defeat that made him a legend and gave the American West its first true hero. Historians now cast a less glorious picture of George Custer, who is more likely referred to as a villain than as an American martyr. But one point is clear. George Custer was an exceptionally brave and effective combat leader. During America's bloody civil war, the 23-year-old Custer became the youngest and most admired general in the Union Army, with heroics that helped him win the most decisive battle at Gettysburg. Custer in a battle uh, was, was a thing of beauty. Uh, he, he could direct people with precision, uh, never get rattled. I mean, he just had a sense of physical courage uh, that was inspiring. And that's a real gift when you're out there in the chaos of war. And Custer had it. From an early age, it was clear that this Ohio boy was determined to transcend his lowly origins. His self-confidence so impressed his congressman that despite his lack of qualifications, he won a coveted spot at West Point in 1857. By the time of his graduation from West Point in 1861, Custer's insubordination helped him compile a list of infractions never before equaled in the history of the academy. Custer uh, would finish last in his class, but he wasn't stupid by any means. Whenever he was running into serious trouble, he'd hunker down and work his way back. And so, in one sense, he led a chaotic, fun-filled life, but on the other, there was a real discipline there. Although Custer was fresh out of West Point when the Civil War began, his exploits on the battlefield proved that he was more than ready for command. He never asked anyone to do anything that he wouldn't do himself. In the bloodiest war in all of American history is in the thick of the fighting from the first battle to the last battle, and he's barely scratched. It's just absolutely remarkable. Custer's luck. He called it, and he came to believe in it. Cited for bravery in his very first engagement at the Battle of Bull Run, the New York Tribune proclaimed, 
future writers of fiction will find in Brigadier General Custer most of the qualities which go to make up a first-class hero. Not only did the flamboyant Custer act the part of a hero, but he also dressed the part. It was like a, a circus rider gone mad, someone wrote. But those who at first thought this was just a showman quickly changed their mind because Custer was a fighter. His soldiers, they admired him, uh, even worshipped him. They emulated his dress and uh, his division began to sport red scarves uh, so that they could all look like Custer. Custer became known as the boy general and stayed on the very front lines until the last day of the Civil War, receiving the flag of truce when General Robert E. Lee finally surrendered at Appomattox on April 9, 1865. During the months following the surrender at Appomattox, the restless Custer found peace more challenging than war. But then in the fall of 1866, Custer received an offer to join the 7th Cavalry to protect gold miners and settlers from Sioux and Cheyenne tribes. Custer goes out to the Indian frontier. It's really the only active theater of operations. This isn't like the Confederates. The Sioux and the Cheyenne and the Arapaho, they don't know the histories of, say, Napoleon Bonaparte's armies, and they don't care. Custard camps on top of hills so that he has a view of the countryside, builds big fires. It's well the first thing that happens. The enemy sees him and goes away. Then, on August 4th, 1873, while protecting the Northern Pacific Railroad workers in Montana, Custer and his 7th Cavalry were attacked for the first time by a large band of Sioux warriors who were led by Crazy Horse and the legendary medicine man, Sitting Bull. But the young braves attacked impetuously and with little planning. Custer, who had been taking an afternoon nap, reacted quickly and mounted an effective defense. After a brief skirmish, the Indians withdrew. Custer's first encounter with Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse helped to confirm his belief that the Plains warriors tended to flee rather than fight. What he doesn't realize is he's fighting what we've come to know as a guerrilla war. It's not that he doesn't have courage to show, it's that he doesn't have a, a place to show it in because he can't find the enemy and display the courage the way he's used to. And when we come back, more on the life of George Armstrong Custer, born on this day in history in 1839. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College a terrific place to send your kids to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. If you can't get to Hillsdale, though, Hillsdale will come to you with their terrific and free online courses, and there are tens upon tens of hours of them. If you're a homeschooling family, if you're lifelong learners, heck, if you're in college or high school or elementary school, these are required courses. They're terrific. Go to hillsdale.edu. You won't be disappointed. That's hillsdale.edu. More on the life of George Armstrong Custer after these messages.
is Our American Stories, and we continue the story of Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer. The Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868 had created the Great Sioux Reservation, which encompassed most of the modern-day state of South Dakota, as well as millions of acres of hunting ground to the west and north, including the Black Hills. By the terms of the treaty, this land, which the American government viewed as worthless, had been granted to the Sioux forever. In return, they were supposed to cease hostilities against the Americans. The majority of the tribe had followed this course, but Sitting Bull remained defiant, refusing to acknowledge the treaty, let alone sign it. Then in 1874, thousands of Americans violated the treaty when a four-letter word made headlines across the country. It's uh, 1874 when the news hits the public that there's gold in the Black Hills. And this is a time of depression in the United States. And so those men who, and some women who can outfit themselves get their equipment and head to the Black Hills to mine for gold. The position of the U.S. government is that miners are going to invade that country and there's going to be a war with Indians, and that is inevitable. The white man had made a treaty with Red Cloud that said the Black Hills would be ours as long as the grass should grow and the water flow. Later, I learned that the long hair had found there much of the yellow metal that makes the white man crazy, and that is what made the bad trouble. Black Elk, 1874. Ironically, it was Custer himself who started this gold rush after leading an expedition into the sacred Sioux lands of the Black Hills and discovering the pay dirt. Custer has a great phrase. He says, we found gold among the roots of the grass. Uh, and he creates this image in that phrase that you just go there, you're a farmer, right? You're gonna just plow up the land, you're gonna plow up the land. First you dig up the gold, you put the gold in the bank, then you put your wheat in the ground. More than 15,000 miners flooded into the region, establishing the towns of Custer and Deadwood. The government offered to buy the Black Hills for $6 million, but the Sioux turned them down. Conflict was inevitable. Elements from Sitting Bull's camps come down and uh, threaten to kill any chief that touches uh, pen to paper. Finally, on November 3rd, President Ulysses S. Grant determined to eliminate this last pocket of Indian resistance in the West. Custer, now 36, was the natural choice to lead such an operation. His mission was to force Sitting Bull and his resistance onto the reservation or destroy them in the process. Putting Custer in charge of this operation showed that the American government meant business. Gentlemen, I want each of your men to carry 100 rounds of carbine, 24 rounds of pistol ammunition, rations, 15 days per man, Artac, coffee, sugar, 12 days of bacon, and another 50 rounds of ammunition per man on a mule train. Any questions? Sir, 
15-day supplies without wagons? Chasing Indians, Colonel. Not cattle. Gotta be quick, gotta be mobile. Wagons will slow us right down. Do not hold me back. I will not have a single Indian say that he escaped the 7th Gavalry. Mark Kellogg, a small-town reporter for the Bismarck Tribune, was the only reporter on Custer's last campaign. His dispatches will be reprinted in the New York Herald. President Grant forbids the Army from taking reporters with them, but Custer knows the value of publicity. Sir. General. We'll talk in the morning, Mr. Kellogg. Some of the officers seem unhappy. Repeat that. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that what you're going to tell your readers, Mr. Kellogg? I'd like to hear your side, sir. Sit down. You want to catch Indians, you have to travel as they do. This is their country. They know it better. Tell your readers this. Seventh Cavalry's gonna get them. Mr. Kellogg, we're going to war. We're not fighting white men. It's not Union and Confederates. For us, warfare has rules. Not for the Indians. Tell you what's worse than how they fight. Oh, they don't fight. The Indian feels no dishonor at running away. First sign of trouble, they'll scatter. Damn Redskins. Only good Indian is a dead Indian. That's a common view, Mr. Kellogg, and if you'll pardon me, plain stupid. If I was an Indian, I'd rather live on the open plains than submit to the confines of a reservation. Not that you readers want to read that either. My orders are clear, Mr. Kellogg. The Indians are to be subdued, driven back to their reservation. You're taking a lot of ammunition. <laughs> we may need it. You can print that. Custer had a kind of a tortured relationship uh, with Native peoples. He identified with them very strongly, uh, prided himself in his knowledge of their rituals and, and lifestyle. And so that, you know, at one point he's embracing them and in many ways imitating them. But on the other side, he was part of white civilization and saw them as a primitive race that were uh, going to eventually melt into the shadows. Custer and his 7th Cavalry are also joined by a company of Indian scouts, mostly Crow and Arikara, who as lifelong enemies of the Sioux allied themselves with the Americans. But in response to a plea from Sitting Bull, the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes will join the Sioux in their fight. Within a week or so prior to the Battle of Little Bighorn, many more of these reservation Indians were pouring into Sitting Bull's camps. This number swelled to probably 1,500 to perhaps as many as 2,000 warriors by June 25th seven to eight thousand individuals altogether. Sitting Bull has amassed the greatest gathering of Indians on the northern plains in its history. He sees it as his last stand against white encroachment. For Sitting Bull's people, there's no place to run. There's no place to go. This is it. Shortly after dawn on June 25th, 1876, Custer ascends to an overlook called the Crow's Nest 
near the Little Bighorn River in Montana. They cannot see the village directly because the terrain is very deceptive. But in the valley of the Little Bighorn, uh, they can see arising a huge cloud of, of smoke. The Crows were the first one to recognize the fact that there was, they said there was more Indians there than, 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 the, than the military had bullets. It was clear as a stream at sunrise. Well, I said it's as good as anyone. I can't see anything. It's a big village. No Indians, nothing. Look for the wriggling worms. Worms? That'll be the pony herd. <sighs> Sir, if you don't find more Indians in that valley than you ever saw, you can hang me. What a damn sight of good hanging you, wouldn't it? Today we rest up. Tonight we surround them. At daybreak, we attack. Play cute. Play cute. Waste. Aik Isla. He says if you must attack, it has to be today. Today, under cover, we rest. Tomorrow, they don't know what hit them. Well, then tomorrow we're going to have one big fight. That is my plan. Sir. Pack fell off one of the mules. I know. We sent some men to pick them up. They found it, sir. A mile or so back. There were two Indians by it. I trust they were dealt with. They got away, sir. Which direction? Get back to your men. Gentlemen, this got assuring me that the Indians are very close. How many, it's hard to say. But our presence has quite possibly been discovered. We have no choice but to launch our attack today. Today, sir. The men need rest. Horses, too. If we so delay him one more day, that whole village could scatter. Hell, they might even attack us. Prepare your men. Yes, sir. Then, waving his hat in his hand, he declares... Gentlemen, we're gonna capture this village in one piece. Cross the river, take the women and children hostage. When the warriors return, they won't touch us. We caught him napping! Let's go get them, boys. Finish this up and head for home. To the river! More after these messages. And we return to the story of George Armstrong Custer, who was born on this day in history in 1839. Let's return to the final installment of this fascinating story. We caught him napping! Yeah! Let's go get him, boys. Finish this up and head for home. To the river! As they gallop into the Sioux camp, Custer makes a tactical decision and splits his cavalry into four parts. Nine hundred against uh, ninety men down there were just overwhelming odds. 
Custer's cavalry arrive, Indians come pouring out of the village, and the outnumbered troopers begin a panicked retreat. The soldiers were not prepared. They were tired, they'd ridden all night long. They were fighting these Indians and, and they got they got war paint on and they look mean, you're scared of them. You're not gonna act like normal. They were absolutely scared of, of, of the tribes coming in. Of course the Indians took, took advantage of that. They could see warriors flitting around the woods. The sounds were incredible. The whistles, the screams, the, the firing of the guns. Particularly bad were the arrows that were coming down through the trees. It was terrifying. It was over 90 degrees, it was hot, you had gunpowder in the air, you had people screaming, people crying, women on the battlefield that grabbing their tongue, uh, singing songs, singing praise songs. conventional warfare training is worthless against the Great Plains Indians. The Indians are moving up the gullies. They're not exposing themselves. They're not foolish enough to ride their horses around the soldiers uh, in Hollywood fashion. And then there was a rush, and Custer's last stand is over. Probably the whole battle, from the time first Custer was engaged until the last man was killed, uh, did not uh, consume an entire hour. When the smoke from the battlefield lifts, every soldier under Custer's command is lost, all 225 men. The Indians lost only 60 braves. Custer's body is found at the crest of a flat-topped hill. His brother Tom lie beside him. His other brother Boston and nephew Audie along with his brother-in-law, Lieutenant Calhoun, lie nearby. News of the Battle of the Little Bighorn came like a thunderstorm out of the West, and it rained on the biggest parade of the century. In Philadelphia, all of the best and brightest of the United States, including all the top brass of the United States Army, had gathered for the centennial celebration of the United States of America. The Republic was 100 years old. But now came the news from the plains that Custer and the 7th Cavalry had been wiped out by the Sioux in Montana. Sherman and Sheridan responded as one. It's a lie. It couldn't possibly be true. But nevertheless, on July 4th, 1876, the news broke. Indeed, it was true. Custer was dead. The 7th Cavalry shattered. The Sioux were triumphant on the northern plains. An angry nation demanded answers. This was a thunderbolt. The West was won. How could this happen? It's like uh, the sinking of the unsinkable Titanic. You know, it just doesn't compute. So who was at fault? 
Custer was reckless according to the person who was doing the evaluating. Custer's personality, in fact, uh, is a product more of the person who's looking at him than it is Custer himself because who he was depends on who you are. And if you're inclined to see recklessness in uh, his actions, you will consider him to be reckless. If you are one of the Custer admirers, you will see in his every decision uh, uh, the marks of a military genius. It's funny that we have to blame someone. We can't, we can't say that the Army lost that fight because the Indians won. But the greatest Indian victory in the history of the West stirred a vengeance that the Plains Indians would regret to this very day. For Sitting Bull, who took no active part in the fight, gave his braves one simple command. Sitting Bull warned the people that when they die in camp, you are instructed not to take anything from them, nothing, part of war is that you take their guns, you take their ammo, you take their clothing, you, these become trophies, booty, up war, and, and all, all armies have done it. And so it was standard practice. But he warned the people, do not take anything from these soldiers when they die in our camp, or great misery will befall our people. People did not listen to what Sitting Bull had told them, and they took everything they could. And after that, we know that they chased us to the four corners of this country and to Canada as well. And great ministry has befallen our people ever since, even to this day. By the fall of that year, virtually all the Sioux and Cheyenne who fought in the battle were forced back onto the reservation. A year later, Crazy Horse turned himself in and was killed in a scuffle with guards. Sitting Bull escaped to Canada, but later returned to the United States. He had a part in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, reenacting the Battle of Little Bighorn. He died a reservation Indian. And great job, as always, on that. And that's Greg Hengler doing the writing and the producing on that piece. The battle was over in an hour. 225 men killed. The 7th Cavalry wiped out. And George Custer didn't just lose his life. His brother did. Talk about having some skin in the game. The Indians lost only 60. We love bringing you these in this days in histories because... As David McCullough reminds us in a great Hillsdale speech, nothing had to happen the way it happened. And we always look back and judge, and we can't. And too often, the way history is taught today, well, it's just not contextualized. There's agendas, and that's what we try to do here in this, in, on this show each and every day, is tell you the story straight up. And again, as always, our This Days in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their terrific and free online courses. The Constitution 101 course being the best. I went to a great law school and I can promise you, I learned little of what I learned sitting in on that Dr. Larry Orrin course at Hillsdale. 
It's that good. Again, it's free. And history, well, it should come alive like this. It's not a bunch of dead old guys. They were alive. They didn't know it was going to happen. And when we're listening, we have to pretend we didn't either. Custer's story, here on Our American Stories. We continue with our American stories, and we love telling stories about music here on the show, and particularly about the stories of songs. And this, well, this is a good one. For a very brief period in 1979, The Knack looked like the future of rock and roll. It was the summer of the infamous disco demolition night at Comiskey Park in Chicago, and many old-school rock fans were ready to embrace a new band. Into this void stepped the neck and their song, My Sharona, which reached number six on Rolling Stone's top ten one-hit wonders of all time. Here's Greg Hengler with this story of a song. Even now, multiple decades after the biggest single of 1979, Sharona Alprin can't escape it. Almost any time someone hears my name, Miss Alprin says, they say, Oh, like, my Sharona? And then they say, Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to say that. You probably hear that all the time. They have no idea. She's not just a Sharona. She's the Sharona. The object of the Knack's bopping 1979 hit, My Sharona. The band's lead singer, Doug Figer, wrote the song's lustful lyrics about her when she was 17 and he was 26. Here's Doug Figer. It is a song that has a life of its own. It's not just a song. It's a cultural icon, if you will. The song became Billboard's number one single of 1979. Here's the next bassist, Prescott Niles. People do know the name of the band. But my experience is they go, yeah, um, you know, My Sharona. Oh, yeah, it's my favorite song and my kids and my wife. And, you know, and then all of a sudden everybody's got a story about My Sharona. My Sharona has never gone away. Ben Stiller built a memorable scene around the song in his 1994 directorial debut, Reality Bites, claiming it for Generation X. Nirvana did a grunge version and the tune was reported to be on President George W. Bush's iPod in 2005. It's an odd kind of fame being the person in the song. Here's Sharona Elprin. People say, oh, like my Sharona. And very, very often I say, yes, I'm the same girl that the song was written about, and they can't believe it. Lead singer Doug Figer explains how My Sharona all started with lead guitarist Burton Avere. Burton had a drum figure that he played me. Now, he's since told me that it was only months uh, 
but I seem to remember it was a couple of years before we actually wrote the song. He, you know, beat it out on his, on his legs, showed me this drum beat. It was before he told me, you know, what the riff was gonna be even. He just said, I have this beat. Burton. I'd been listening a lot to the second Elvis Costello album, and there was this, this, this appeal of this kind of demented approach to rock and roll, you know, just kind of balls to the wall and slamming. And I had this riff, and I brought it into one of our rehearsals, and I just started playing it. I didn't even say, you know, um, hey, here's something. I just started playing the riff, and uh, I was telling Bruce I imagined... Um, no symbols, just kind of a, a Tom Snare kind of thing, and he came up with the riff. Here's drummer Bruce Gary. My roots are very much surf music. My first band was a surf band, and there was surf stomps. And I can show you, you know, a, a surf stomp is like a flam thing. It's like a... Which is, which is uh, basically, he wanted it to be, you know, kind of... And I interjected the flam thing which gave it its own characteristic to it. Here it is, the only My Sharona rehearsal tape in existence. It's Burton's lick, of course. This is what we fueled everything off of, the main riff. We have been playing around locally for, for a couple of months, and there were a couple of girls that used to, actually three of them, we used to, uh, kind of affectionately call them the Nackettes, you know. They used to come down to hear us perform, and one of them was named Sharona. And my lead singer, Doug, had quite a crush on Sharona. I, I had to have her. It consumed me. <laughs> uh, she was my muse. She, she compelled me. Here again is Sharona Alpern. One time I went, and I remember, I think it was Burton or Doug or someone was like, should we play it, should we play it for her? And I uh, didn't even know what they were talking about. I was sitting on the couch. It could have been anything. It was a normal day like any other day. And then the next, the next memory I have, I was in my car thinking, did I just hear a song with my name in it? Did, was that my name in the song? And it was in my head. But uh, right away, I just, I couldn't believe I, that there was a song with my name in it. It was recorded at MCA Whitney Studios on Glendale Boulevard in uh, Glendale. It's not there anymore. We decided to record it there with Mike Chapman. We felt it was a, uh, better than doing it in Hollywood because it's not, there's no distractions there. It's like that studio's set in an area where there's really nothing else. So we were able to concentrate more in there. Here's producer Mike Chapman. But they, they played the song right there and then. And I said, well, stop. And they said, what, you don't like it? And I said, no, of course I like it. I said, that's a number one. Absolutely. You've, you've got to know you have a number one song. You ready? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. He said start the tape. <laughs> I, I don't mean that in a sliding way. Uh, Mike's contribution was saying, I think the way you should record this 
album is as if you were playing your club set? Uh, probably my main contribution was to leave it alone, was to record it well and not mess around with it. Uh, and my job was to put it on tape and to make it sound the way it sounded when they did it live. Within months of their live debut, popular club gigs on the Sunset Strip, as well as guest jams with musicians such as Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty, and Ray Manzarek, led to the band being the subject of a record label bidding war. The band was pursued by 10 record labels, but decided on going with Capitol Records. Here again is Burton. When we got our record deal and the record was made, everybody knew. I mean, everybody from the start just knew Sharon was the song. But there were some, you know, second guessers at the record company who were saying, well, you know, hard rock on the radio right now. And uh, they actually kind of did a little dance about maybe Sharon not being the first release, which was absurd and we all knew it. So instead of saying, you don't know what you're talking about, we just kind of held our tongue and uh, because the song did its work for itself, you know. Here's Doug. They didn't release the single until two weeks after the album had been released. But the day the album was released to radio, My Sharona became the most added record as an album cut in the world. It went from, from nobody ever having heard it to being in heavy rotation in one day. It was a phenomenon. It was on every single minute, no matter where I went. The minute it was on the airplanes. Then I'd get off an airplane. I'd get in a limousine or a cab. It was in the limousine or cab. I'd get to the hotel. It was in the hotel. We would go on vacation. The top 40 band who was playing in the lobby or in the piano bar played my Sharona. You couldn't escape it. At one time, I would turn it off sometimes. I even think that they might have made it music in dentist's office or in the grocery stores without the words. I got the girl. Sharona did become my girlfriend. It took me a year, you know, after I wrote it. It took me a year. She was, she was, you know, very, very, she played very hard to get and, uh, but we became uh, good friends. And we lived together for three and a half years. You know, having it become a hit again in the 90s was a remarkable thing, getting to tour America with a whole new audience of young kids that didn't know it had been a hit 15 years earlier. That was remarkable. You know, and I still meet kids today, young people, you know, who were like, 12 when it was a hit from Reality Bites, you know, and to them it's their youth. And, and there are people, you know, my age who it was their youth too because we all had that experience when, when it first happened. And, and now, I mean, people play it, I mean, you know, all over the place. They play it at sporting events. So I think because of the youthfulness of it, and because it's not so much restricted stylistically to the 70s or the 80s or the 90s, I just think it keeps reinventing itself. And I'm, for, and I'm happy about that because it doesn't sound like it's, 19, you know, it's this particular year. It's got a real uh, timelessness about it. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great work as always, Greg. And what a story. 
And that song, well, once you hear it, you can't get it out of your head, whether you like it or not. It's stuck. And my goodness, to have a song written about you at that age. Doug Figer was 26. Sharona. Well, she was 17. She was my muse. Because he ached. She compelled me, he said. Recorded in Glendale, California, not far from where my sister and dad and her husband live. My main contribution, said producer Mike Chapman, I left it alone. That's sometimes the hardest thing for a producer to do. The story of my Sharona, the story of a song, here on Our American Story. Habib and this is Our American Stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show and we love telling stories about entrepreneurs, small business people trying to live their American dream, grow their businesses bigger and have their families prosper and their communities. And our own Alex Cortez went to a fascinating event called Open Call where Walmart opens their doors to over 500 entrepreneurs to pitch their American-made products all in hope of getting into the retailers over 11 thousand stores. It's a great democratization of the buying process for folks who may not know anyone at Walmart, and it's a part of Walmart's commitment to buy an additional $250 billion of American-made products in a 10-year period. And Alex now brings us the story of a praline proprietor he met there named Suzanne Hart. I'm Suzanne. This is my mom, Kay, and so it's named Katie Sweet. We're all scared of her, I'm just going to say that. She's an accountant by trade. The numbers match. It's We're all responsible. So, just as an example, how expensive was their hotel bill last night? It was oh, way we're high. We're going to hear about that. Yeah, because, um, yeah, we should have dinner? brought the car and stayed in the car. <laughs> <laughs> dinner, we had crackers. We started with her grandmother's recipe. She and my dad started a company in 72, basically because my grandparents were ill and they stayed home to take care of them. My dad was a gourmet food salesman. He had to work out of the garage at that point so they could be there for them. We all lived with them, and then uh, they just, we ship about 300,000 pounds of candy a year. We have 60 employees now, so we have 30 for this company, we have 30 for another company, and some people have been there 30 years. So we're the second generation coming into it. It's, it's really hard to have your own company. I mean, it's very hard. You work a ton of hours. There's no guarantee. Everybody gets paid before you do. And, you know, uh, you have to plan for everything and stuff happens. But you're responsible. You get your finances in order and you mind your finances and that detects everything you do. You can't go too forward because you've got a lot of people that you're responsible for. Including her four kids, the third generation who grew up in the business. And my little boy messes with their business calendars where he goes and writes his name across all of them. Yeah, that's not a good thing. They get to live well in text and, um, you know, they tell us how we could do it better. Um, They tell me how to do Instagram because I put their pictures on there and I had to take them all off because I could be business oriented. You know, they're so critical. And at that very moment, one of their kids texted them this. 
in the Cool Kids Club yet. Okay, that's my 17-year-old. Yeah, she's um, Cool yeah. Kids Club. Yeah, well, yeah. Already in it. Yeah, no, no, we're not. No, they let us know. No. Yeah. Thankfully, Suzanne's fans do speak to her more sweetly. We have people all over the country that call us, and I have a little fan book that I talk to everybody with. They write to me, and I write back, and I send them little Texas tins, and you know that we we all talk. It's very nice. They visit. They bring flowers it's kind of really i'm not kidding <laughs> your customers yes your flowers? yes they do yes it's that good yeah and yeah it's a whole it's it's a it's a family business and uh we share it's like a reality show without the show okay and we're nice to each other because it's more effective to be nice to someone and respectful and get the job done than you know but what I really wanted to know more about was this fan book thing. People will call in and they start asking about the product and they see it somewhere and they want to buy it, but it's like an individual at home and they, they don't have a credit card and they want to write a check and I'm like, okay, let me send you a couple of samples and then they're like, they write like thank you notes with real mail and everything. It's very sweet and then we talk and then, you know, you hear about the weather in Wisconsin or there was a gentleman in Detroit that liked it and then there's a man with Alzheimer's that his family bought it for all of his nurses because he requested it with the Prowlings in Texas. And then I have a lady named Sugar whose real name is Carlene, Carl and Lean, okay? And she's in California and we're friends, we talk, and she's in a assisted living and we ship out to her. And it's fun, I mean, they, they all come by and let us know how they're doing. They're very nice, I mean, they're very sweet and they're, they just want to talk. People just want to be heard, seriously, they, and they like getting mail, and they want to know that you're not just a service thing going, yeah, whatever, and blow them off, you know. So it seems crazy that, as the owner of a business, Suzanne is spending so much time chatting it up with fans, but Suzanne sees it as anything but crazy. Well, I need to do that for me because it keeps me real with, and plus people tell me what's going on. They tell me how my front people are answering the phone, how the product arrived, and I listen. People will tell you exactly what's going on. They'll tell you if they can't look at your website, if your website's not up to par, you know, if it's hard to shop on, they tell you and we fix it. So I, and then sometimes I call them just to ship them something and ask them what they think, and then they give me the whole rundown. They will tell you exactly what you may not want to hear, but you're hearing it from someone. I was curious, how many of these regulars does Suzanne have that she's talking with? I don't know, I don't, um, yeah, probably, I don't know, like 20, I don't know, between 15 you don't need and to mumble 20. It. You can say it. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's a, we're all friends, we talk a lot, and, you know, and I let everybody know if they call in to put them through to me no matter what, and we talk, and I stop what I'm doing. It's a lot of fun. It's, I'm very blessed on that, because they keep you real, and then you have to know your customers and when you lose sight of that you really shouldn't be in the business because that's who's buying your product does that sound kind of cliche it's true it's true it's really true i mean everyone's money is green and everyone's trusting you with with what you know that you're ensuring what you're giving them it's a, it's a, an honor. And before we forget, how did their pitch meeting go? Well, Walmart's buyers were interested enough to invite Katie Sweet to come back and this time to show them all their products. A great sign for this small business. And if Walmart moves forward with bringing them in the stores, Suzanne thinks it'll enable them to create 10 to 15 new jobs. Adding 10 jobs in our area is a very big deal. Yeah, and we have a 24,000 square foot warehouse that we can build into two stories to run like three crews. 
and we're approaching that as we go into like double shifts. Growing pains are hard. That's the hard stuff. Talking to people is fun. You know, <laughs> running two crews. <laughs> Lots of logistics. And great job as always, Alex. And my goodness, open call at Walmart. Hundreds of folks like Suzanne Hart trying to get their product nationwide. And what a thing to do. Again, a commitment to $250 billion worth of American-made products in a 10-year period. Suzanne Hart of Katie Sweet. You can learn more about her yummy pralines by going online to katiesweet.com. Suzanne Hart's story and open call stories from Walmart here on Our American Stories. American Stories, and today we want to bring your attention to an amazing documentary that is currently available on Netflix and Hulu, a documentary that will make you laugh, think, and cry. And this segment you're about to hear is a preview of what you'll see in this mind-opening film, and we love to bring you things from the culture and pass them along to you. And you may have a life we don't. We love checking out all this stuff and sharing it with you. Alive Inside is a joyous cinematic exploration of music's capacity to reawaken our souls and uncover the deepest parts of our humanity. It chronicles the astonishing experiences of individuals suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's around the country who have been revitalized through the simple experience of listening to music. So what's the big deal? Why would anyone go out of their way to give someone with Alzheimer's an iPod? Take a listen to this 90-year-old woman who tragically can't remember much about her life on this earth when she's asked about her childhood. How old are you? How old am I? Yeah. I'm 90 years old. What was life like when you were a little girl? Oh, God, I've forgotten so much. I've forgotten so much. I'm very sorry. Oh, it's okay. What have you forgotten? I've forgotten... What I used to do after I became a young lady, I've forgotten so much. I can't remember. I've been here, I've been here, I've been here 90 years. And if I could remember, I would tell you, but I don't, I can't remember. Dan Cohen is founder and director of Music and Memory, which promotes the use of digital music players with individualized playlists to improve the quality of life for elders. Listen to what happens when he plays this same woman, some Louis Armstrong. I want to try an experiment. What? I want you to try and let the music take you back into your memories, to travel back into time. And then we'll stop, and you can tell me where it took you. Um, okay. um, you ready? Mm-hmm. Yes, I want to be. In that number, I went to say, 
He's saying when the Saints go by, marching by. And it takes me back to my school days. I would like to hit the number. Mama told us not to go listen to him. We would sneak off at night, bring back pictures from the dance. And I worked in King County nine years. I was working at Fort Jackson. And my son, on February the 4th, was 69. <laughs> I didn't know I could talk so What you just heard was an instant illumination of this woman's soul through the power of music. What a great God moment. But you need to watch this documentary called Alive Inside to get the full effect. Seeing the faces, the body language of elderly people who instantly light up upon hearing the music of their youth is something we all need to witness for ourselves. Next, we're introduced to another old-timer named Henry. Henry is borderline catatonic and doesn't recognize his daughter. Henry, speak to me. I want to hear your voice. Can you talk to me? So let me hear you. Tell me your full name. Henry has dementia, and he needs total assistance with all his activities of daily living. Hi, Papa. Huh? How you doing? Huh? Who am I? I'm your daughter. Daughter? Mm-hmm. Which one? Listen to Henry after a nurse puts headphones on his ears. He asks if he can sing along. Then a nurse describes his reaction. I I would sing with this. You can if you like. first met him, he was very isolated, and he used to always sit on the unit with his head like this. He didn't really talk to much people, and then when I introduced the music to him, this is his reaction every since. <laughs> Everyone in that room with Henry was blown away by his reaction. Dan Cohen the man behind this effort to give music back to the elderly who suffer from dementia, talked to Henry right after he listened to that song. Here is their remarkable conversation. Do you like music? Yeah, I'm crazy about music. You play beautiful music, beautiful sound. Did you like music when you were young? Yes, yes. I went to big dances and things. What was your favorite music when you were young? Well, well I guess... Uh, Isn't that incredible? This man couldn't recognize his own daughter, but after just a few minutes of listening to an iPod, could remember his favorite musician, Cab Calloway, as he burst out into a scat. Henry was then asked what his favorite song was and what the favorite part of his life was. Listen to what happens next. What was your favorite song? Oh, I'll be home there Christmas. You can come plans on me with plenty of snow. Near the toe. 
present Reverend New Tree. Ow! Christmas Eve will carry me where that love light beam. Henry, my, yeah. what was the favorite part of your life? What was your favorite part of your life? My life? It was part of my life was riding a bicycle. Grocery boy. What'd you like about riding a bicycle? That's why I made my money. You need no money. Isn't that true about all the favorite parts of our life? So what's going on here? This film goes on to explain that music is recorded in the part of our brain that is the last place dementia affects. So why isn't this being implemented in nursing homes across this country and everywhere? Dan Cohn explains the problem. I can sit down and write out a script for $1,000 a month antidepressant. No problem. Nobody asks any questions. If I want to provide a person with a $40 personal music system, that will take a lot of work. Because personal music doesn't count as a medical intervention. You see what I'm saying? It's sort of a side thing over here. The real business, trust me, is in the pill bottle. Open for me. Our healthcare system imagines the human being to be a very complicated machine. We figured out how to turn the dials. Blood pressure, oh, turn that down, you know? Blood sugar, oh, turn that down. We have medicines that can adjust the dials. We haven't done anything medically speaking, to touch the heart and soul of a patient. One more of the many elderly in this film suffering from dementia is a woman named Mary Lou. Here, she struggles to identify kitchen utensils before she is given an iPod. Listen to what she says immediately after listening to the Beach Boys. What do you call that? Um, it's a... For, uh, sc- Knife... No, fork or spoon. Would you like to hear some music? Would you like to listen to some music? Sure, why not? Here you go. Over I your don't head. know how to do this. Just straight over your ears and your head. Perfect. See a little button in the middle? That's that? Yeah, right in the middle. Click it once. Stop the music. Uh, oh, thank you so much. Okay. So there's a, a tears of joy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just want to make sure. Oh, yeah. That's the best thing I've ever, ever had, this thing. It can't get away from me if I'm in this place. I thought you were going to grow wings. I was trying. I, I, you... <laughs> <laughs> This incredible documentary concludes with a beautiful message on the importance and power of music in all of our lives. And we know, we know that to be the case. What a remarkable thing this man did. We know music has the power to change lives. We know it triggers memory. But this guy went out and did it. And let me tell you, if you want to help or you want to know more or learn more, go to musicandmemory.org. That's musicandmemory.org. There you can learn more about Dan Cohn's remarkable mission to bring music to those of us who need it more than ever. What a selfless, creative, and generous way to honor 
those in their final days. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from arts to sports, from history to business, and everything in between, stories about love and death, and things you care about. Send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll listen to them, produce them, and get some microphones over to you, and get a team out to you, and get the stories on the air. I would say one in five of our stories now are coming from you. And our next story, well, Alex Cortez brings it to us. Here's an unusual college president. Look, I was all over the place. We served in Germany, in Korea. I was in the 101st Airborne Division when we went into Iraq in 03 as one of the first groups across the border after shock and awe. I served a year in Afghanistan managing construction in, in Bagram for a year. The Army gave me more than I ever could have given it. Mike Rounds is an unusual college president of an equally unusual college. We have so many employers that want to hire these guys, not just for their skills, but for their character, for their leadership abilities. So we say, if you're a company you want to hire, you pay us to come to these career fairs. The two career fairs we had this year, we ran out of space both times, and we had a total of 175 companies from 14 states, and that's to hire 76 seniors, right? So that's crazy. I mean, there's no other school in the country that can say we have almost twice as many employers paying money to try to come and hire these guys than we have students. And it's a trade school. Williamson College of the Trades. In today's culture, it's become, well, you know, um, if I don't want to take advanced placement philosophy, write essays that are going to get me into, you know, Harvard... Well, if I tell a counselor that I'd rather work with wood, now I get treated a certain way that isn't always very good. You're a Votech kid. You're not motivated. For our guys, they like to work with their hands. So they like the idea of working with wood or being outside or building something or fixing something. And so looking at that young man and saying, look, your abilities, desire, skills, interest in working with your hands is nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, we need guys like you. Our two oldest sons graduated from Princeton, and I tell people this all the time. I mean, great school, but I don't believe that they had all the Princeton graduates multiply by 1.5 or 1.7 companies competing to hire those people. They just didn't, and I don't think there's anyone else in the country that can claim that. But we have it right here twice a year. You can come see it for yourself. And these kids with two job offers on average went to a college that's free if you can believe that who was founded by an awesome dude named isaiah williamson to be free vision of a philanthropist a quaker here in philadelphia he was a very wealthy man and um but also very frugal and who said i see these poor young men on the streets with no future and i want to build a school where free of charge they can get training in a trade and an education, moral and religious, and exercise and recreation to become useful, respected members of society. When he passed away, he left a million dollars to endow the school and a million to build it. So for 130 years, it's been doing that. And so it's still, every student that attends here is completely funded room, board, and tuition. Outside of a few student fees, and then equate to 
probably less than $2,000 over the three years that they're here. Everything is provided for them, and they're all young men from some pretty extreme need. We have over 400 applicants for only 100 spots, so we focus on the young men that first have the capability and the desire to go through this challenging program, but then the next default goes back to who has the most financial need, and that's the neat part of it. It's run really like a military academy. Early morning, they're up, they clean their room and their common areas. They come out in front of the flagpole, 715, and they stand at attention and watch the flag go up and get inspected for their appearance and breakfast and chapel, and we pack their day full of class and shop and activities. So it's an intense environment. They have to be clean-shaven. The first two years, the senior year, they're allowed to have a, uh, a neatly trimmed beard or mustache, but that's part of the inspection in the morning. Their shoe shine, do they look presentable? They have clean clothes on. They're all in coat and tie. Well, you can imagine that you know most of the kids that come here have never owned a coat and tie. So we actually have a clothes closet. People donate gently used coats, suits, shoes, belts. And so that's what the guys wear. Every day when they come to line up and every meal, they're in coat and tie. And then when they go to the shop, they change into their shop clothes. But that's, that's another unique part of Williamson, I guess. But why wear a coat and tie at all? I mean, it's not the uniform for most trade jobs. It's interesting, where did that idea come from? It's kind of been here forever. One of the reasons was that when Mr. Williamson wrote his deed of trust, he designated a board of trustees, and on that board of trustees was a guy named John Wanamaker. And John Wanamaker's famous store in Philadelphia, and for many, many years, they would go down to Wanamaker's store and they would fit them with two suits. And it was always part of the culture here. Years later, that dried up, but then the idea of continuing to have them in coat and tie. And just to give you an idea, last year's freshman class, when we averaged the family's taxable income per family member, it came out to $4,200. So very few of them have owned a coat and tie. And we don't have a uniform factory putting them in a uniform, but to say this is our standard and we recognize that you probably we don't have the means to acquire that stuff, so that's why we run the clothes closet. And I really think that it changes even subconsciously how they view themselves. And I think they really feel like they're part of something special, maybe for the first time in their lives. And it's how they carry themselves, how they think of themselves. It's all part of that. And I think having them dress the way we have them dress and groomed the way that they groom is all part of building that confidence in themselves is zero tolerance for drugs and alcohol. So, I mean, one offense, you're out. As a Catholic, hearing that was painful. I'm Catholic too, and I, I'm, a, I'm a social drinker. I like beer, but I always tell them the story that, hey, I was a lieutenant colonel in Afghanistan for a year, and general order number one was no alcohol. And I like beer, and I like to drink socially, but I knew the rule was the rule. And I didn't argue with it and say, oh, I'm a colonel, I shouldn't have to do that, or I, I just said, that's the rule. It's very clear, and you have to make a decision. You know, are you, are you going to chance it, or are you going to not do it? The only sure way to not get something to happen is to avoid it. And, you know, as you transition from being a high school student to being a, a grown man who's starting to make decisions about the, your future, you need to put yourself with the kind of people that are making better decisions than that. It is strict, but for a lot of these guys, the discipline and structure is what sets them apart when the employers come. The day of the career fair, all you got to do is just walk through the gym and ask these companies, 
you're here from Kentucky, California. Why? What do you? And they will tell you exactly why they come and try to hire Williamson guys. It has as much to do with the discipline and character pieces of these guys as it does to do with the specific skills they may have been trained in in their individual program. Here's one Williamson student on the day of his graduation. I had eight job offers when I took the one I have now, and they're still rolling in. I got a phone call yesterday for another one. How many college graduates have employers actively seeking them for employment? And I think that's one thing about this place. Like, besides everything else that this place has to offer, you will graduate with a job, guaranteed. If you want it, you got it. And we're going to continue with this story after a commercial break. And it came to us from one of our friends in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And his name's Mark Murray, and he told us about Williamson College of the Trades, and we jumped right on it. And some folks from there have visited Williamson and are now looking to bring its model to their community with a Catholic trade school called Harmel. Your community can do this too, by the way, and that's why we bring you these stories. Stories have a tremendous imitative power. And just shipping our kids off to college to accumulate debt with no discernible skills after just can't continue, and we keep hearing this from our listeners, that this is such a big concern of theirs. And reach out to Mike Rounds, the president, and take a visit. Every region in America could use a Williamson College. By the way, I was particularly taken aback, not just that they're teaching the trades, but more important, they're teaching character. That suit thing is great, and I love it when Mr. Rounds said, it changes how these kids view themselves, how they carry themselves and how they think of themselves. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story of Williamson College of the Trades with Mike Rounds, the president. This is Our American Stories. Turn to the story of Williamson College of the Trades, a trade school outside of Philadelphia, but not your ordinary trade school, folks, a, a product of great generosity and philanthropy. And we're talking to its president, former military man, Mike Rounds. Let's pick up where we last left off. Every day we go to a short 15-minute chapel before we head off to class at 8. And I get up early so I can get over there. <laughs> I'm a former military guy, so I'm used to, I get up at 4.30, <laughs> I get out and head over to the YMCA, get a workout in, get back and try to be over here a little before 7.30 so that I can start my day. Just just not, not to show my face there, but because I really, I think that's a unique part of being at Williamson is the opportunity to start each day in chapel thinking about what's really important. When you apply to Williamson, you don't have to say, I'm a Christian, but as part of the interview process, we tell you the things that are unique about Williamson, and that includes going to daily chapels. So although a student doesn't have to sign a profession of faith or stand up and say anything, they do understand that just like everything at Williamson, you can't opt out. So you are required to be there in your seat, ready to go when we start chapel at 730. Be respectful, stay awake. But for the guys that have that peace in their life, it's a great connecting point. There's a lot of fellowship opportunities. So that, to me, is something I really love about Williamson that's pretty special. It's pretty special of President Rounds, too. Most college presidents aren't involved with the students like this. 
service is also one of our core values. And we have a whole week in May after final exams. We take the next week and everybody gets involved in a service project. Staff, faculty, students, off campus, all around the area. And just the idea of like, hey, guys, you know, uh, Mr. Williamson and many others have made this possible for you. So now give back yourself. Make that part of who you are. Serve your community. Find places where you can contribute your skills, talent, time, whatever. Pay it forward. Here's some more Williamson students on the day of their graduation. My roommate, Richie. I think it might have been freshman year or junior year, he pulled over on the side of 202 and fixed somebody's flat tire. And now every time I'm driving, I look for somebody on the side of the road. If they have a flat tire, I, I try to stop if I can, or even just someone needs money. Like, you see somebody struggling with gas, I throw five bucks in there. It's just a little stuff that, like, it becomes a habit. Like, I want to do it now. And I truly think it's the people around me and this place that makes me do it. You create that culture by two things, I think. First, being together. If you came here with a family that's falling apart or struggling, you come here and you build another one. I don't think this place would work if we just had these guys show up in the morning, take a couple classes, and then just go back to wherever they came from. They live together in dorms of 24 with a dorm parent that lives there full-time with them. They do everything together. Over three years, they build very strong bonds. Uh, my experience freshman year, my grandfather passed away. <clears throat> And I was pulled out of class early morning. And by the time I got to the hospital, I checked my phone. And I had several texts from about 20 to 30 different guys asking me how I'm doing, how you're holding up, is there anything we can do? And I was with my immediate family, but I knew in the back of my head, you know, I got another family back at school that they're really there to help me. So that's, that hit hard. We call it a brotherhood, right? I mean, that's what we tell them. This is a brotherhood. like. Your buddies you hung out with in high school are not living their life to the same standard you are. I had uh, a close friend, well, still my close friend, in uh, high school, senior year. Um, when I told him I was thinking about coming to Williamson, you know, first thing was, oh, it's all boys' school. You know, in high school, that's the last thing you want to hear for college. <laughs> but, I forgot all that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, the three years, the three, now I'm in my third, well, now I'm a graduate, actually. And, uh, which is awesome. I'm a graduate and, uh, you know, he's, he's just like, oh man, I wish I went to that school. You know, he owes crazy amounts of money. He's struggling in school, he's struggling to keep up with the payments. And now it's just like, he's looking at me and he's like, you're about to graduate. You know, so if I could talk, or you're a graduate, I'm sorry. So if I could talk to, uh, <laughs> if I could talk to, um, if I could talk to any high school student, I would tell them, make the mature decision. You know, it's hard to get through to them because they're coming out of high school, but you gotta really look at yourself in the mirror and say, am I going to the NBA? Am I going to the NFL? Am I gonna be this big music star? Or, you know, I'm not saying not to chase your dream, but Williamson will, it'll give you direction. It'll put you in a position Something small as, uh, you know, going to North Dakota for the summer. That was a, like, I went to North Dakota for a summer to work, and I had never been on a plane before. You know, it was my first time getting on a plane was through Williamson. I got that experience through Williamson. So it's just, I think they should make the mature decision. You got to really look at yourself in the mirror and say, what do I need to do as a man? <clears throat> Not as what I'm seeing on television or what I see in movies or what, 
this kid did or that kid did because you got to make the decision for yourself. So That is the environment we want to create. And, you know, it can be tough. I mean, in an environment like that where there's a lot of rules and a lot of consequences when you don't meet, it can become kind of a negative, right? At the worst, it could almost become like a prison camp environment, but it's not, just like it's not at a military academy because the focus of what we're trying to teach them in leadership, so with the seniors, as you progress through as a freshman, you're in the shop at the same time as the seniors. So the seniors are responsible for training the freshmen, directing them to lead it with a positive attitude, but to direct somebody, to inspect their work, to correct them when they need it, but in the big picture, right, to be enthusiastic. And, and what you want is that freshman looks at that senior and says, wow, that guy is so squared away. That guy, I want to be like him when I'm a senior. That's what you want. My freshman year coming in, it was always like watching the seniors. Like I was always looking at the seniors, just paying attention. Even when they didn't think we was paying attention what they was doing. And it just really hit that, uh, you know, as a senior to lead, you can't just tell we was you can't just tell the freshmen to do this you have to tell them to do this and then they have to see you doing what you told them to do on a daily basis and that's uh you know that's something that's one of the core values that is stuck with me too integrity i mean any any leader can lead through fear and intimidation and being negative there's a way to get somebody to do something, but when you lead by example and are a role model and inspire and motivate, then people will run through walls for you. And that's the culture we're trying to build here at Williamson as we train our students through a three-year leadership program that culminates in them basically being in charge in the shops and working with the freshmen. We have five of our trustees. It's kind of neat. We have 20 trustees, 10 that are just love our mission, have no connection to it family-wise. Five that are sons of graduates, right? Their dads came here. They didn't go here, but because their dads did, they were very successful and they had other opportunities and they themselves were successful. But they say that Williamson altered the path of my whole family by my dad coming here. And then five that are graduates, including our chairman, who is Bill Bonneberger, was a brick mason from Tamaqua, cool country, and came here and went to work for Toll Brothers for six years and met his wife there. And the two of them decided to quit and start their own home building company and they're now like the 10th largest home builder in the Philadelphia area right and then Art Lalo is class of 79 PhD Art Lalo he it is a great story too because he he was a he was a machinist and he <laughs> he's sitting in the last week of class before graduation at the time and a Boeing guy comes in and says who wants to work for Boeing and Art's like hmm, that sounds like a good company and raised his hand and a guy took down a name and said, all right, show up Monday at this gate, come in, blah, 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 do this. And then he walks out of the room. And Art said, uh, told the shop instructor, so is that the interview Monday? He goes, no, that was the interview. He's expecting you to start work Monday at Boeing. So, <laughs> so Art graduated Saturday, went to work for Boeing. He's still working there 32 years later. He went to night school on Boeing's dime for 22 years. He got a bachelor's, two masters, and a PhD, and is an adjunct professor at Widener in addition to being a senior project manager. We got Tom Goki, who's class of 81, a machinist who's the president and CEO of Millicron. And Millicron's headquartered in Cincinnati, has I think 7,500 employees worldwide, and he's president and CEO. And then John Barnes, power plant class of 84, is the COO of Exelon. And Exelon is a monstrous company, but he's the COO, right? So all those guys can stand in front of our students and say, hey, 
I started just like you. And the things you're teaching at Williamson will give you the tools to be as successful or more successful than, than I have been. So it's up to you. Again, it's about them coming in here with little confidence and then seeing as they build their own confidence and seeing the opportunities. It's a neat thing to see. Uh, you're literally breaking a cycle of poverty for most of these kids. And great job, as always, to Alex, who brings us such interesting stories. And this is a great one, folks. And again, you know, we hope people will copy this. If you've got some net worth or know somebody who does in your community, my goodness, take a visit to this remarkable school, Williamson College of the Trades. And Mike Rounds would be happy to hear you. And if you're listening and you want to just send a donation, well, Williamson College of the Trades, Google it. Send a check. Your money will go to good use. You heard it in the voices of those young folks. By the way, Dr. Jack Templeton of the Templeton Foundation got to know Williamson and his foundation. He wondered whether they were actually getting the results that they thought they were, so he commissioned a three-year multi-million dollar project with Tufts University to study Williamson and a few other comparable schools and found that on average, Williamson was just killing it. Their students scored higher on character attributes like reliability, excellence, competence, and connection to other students. And my goodness, these are big deals. Tufts also concluded that Williamson's system of structure and rules and its brotherhood environment were very important to the cultivation of the character we just talked about. This is Our American Stories, the story of Mike Rounds, the story of Williamson College of the Trades, and in the end, the story of American generosity, here on Our American Stories.